This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. I want to celebrate Emotion Kimber tonight. So let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> Technically not leaving Beirut, but leaving <laughs> Beirut. Yeah, I like it. I like yeah, it. A yeah. bit of both. I think anyone that temporarily exits this place finds themselves returning regardless. Mm -hmm. So it's good to know you'll be doing a back and forth. I want to start off by maybe how I know you, and I don't know if you know this, mm. but on TRT for about three years, every time I would get a message from their producer somewhere in Turkey mm -hmm. wanting to interview me, I would watch the minutes leading up to my segment, and it's you. And that's really how I got to know you on Skype. <laughs> I'm like, who is this woman? And then every single occasion that there was a, either a marker of an anniversary or a major event taking place, I would be walking down the street and you'd be live on TRT. Mm. And I think over time we started getting to know each other this way. On occasion I would wave to you and you'd wave back. And a few weeks ago, I'm wandering in Ashrafi thinking who should be an upcoming guest. And I'm on my silly little electric scooter, I park it, and you really pop out of nowhere. And you mentioned that you're, well, that you're departing in a way. Mm -hmm. And I thought, perfect. Let's celebrate the way I know you and really your journalism career. Because I think it's safe to say it's heavily attached to this city. So let's go back mm -hmm. to what the hell brought you to journalism to begin with. You mentioned it before recording that this is maybe the first time in a decade that you haven't really spoken about yourself mm -hmm. and this type of venue. So let's get to know you a little better. Why are you a journalist? Why are you in Beirut? Why are you attached to this city? And from there, we'll go into all that's gone right and wrong since you arrived. Okay, which I've been involved with to in certain both. degrees. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I came to the Middle East uh, more than a decade and a half ago, 18 years ago in 2005. And I think at that time I came just because I was interested. It was such a big part of the news. Um, and then I found that I loved it, like very deeply loved the essence of it. But I think also what made me stay so long was at that time, very quickly after I'd come to the Middle East, to, you know, kind of the whole region, was I found that there was a huge switch in my mind. It was like I found a jigsaw piece that was missing from the puzzle. And I, I understood... Um, so at that time, again, it was 2005, lots of people that I knew in the UK, etc. many of us were all kind of anti-Western imperialism. This was a sort of a basic stance to have. But the, the piece that I found, the thing that I understood when I came here to the Middle East, um, was that, that the deep level of bias or this, this umbrella of bias that we were all living in um, and this uh, prevalent 
deeply prevalent attitude of European superiority and just how that ingrained near on everything we did and all, all, all thought and again, kind of every sphere of life. And it was like, um, it was like being hit with a wave, understanding that really for the first time. Um, and like I say, for context, this was 2005. Mm. Um, so it was 18 years ago. And yeah. it may, you know, a young person now may be much more familiar with those ideas. Like mm. things have changed so much since then. You know, the main, mainstream media has, has, has changed a lot in what it covers. Like this was actually before the days of Al Jazeera English, for example. Right. Yeah. It was also before social media where you have so much, you have a much greater access to kind of ideas. Of course, these ideas and concepts, of course, they existed before, but just our access and the prevalence of talking about these things mm. is so different. So for me, it was, it was just a complete shift in my understanding of the world and of, of humanity, frankly, that's never returned. Um, and I think that shaped everything I did. But yeah, again, you know, people talk very talk constantly now about white privilege, etc. And that phrase wasn't around at that time. So um, it, it really, it, it changed me completely as a person. So just to make sure, can people in the back hear us? Is the volume okay in the back? Yeah. So 2005, I'm going to speculate the way you described the reasons you wanted to cover this part of the world goes back to the Iraq war, Iraq invasion. I'm going to just extrapolate from the year that it's months after a, a wave of protests and anti-American sentiment for that invasion. Is that the essence of why you ended up in the Middle East? I think so. I mean, you know, we were, I was, at, I was in, in university at that time. We went to those, we were part of those protests against the invasion of Iraq. You know, um, Palestine was in the news at, at that time. It's, yeah, the Middle East was a big part of the new, like, understanding and I knew I wanted to understand things further and I think also you asked me about why I would go into journalism my whole impetus was just to understand things further at, at that point that was as that was um you know I like storytelling I like ideas and I like I like to understand things and that was as far as as it went and I just found that that I did feel that I understood things further by I'm Actually, going to guess the last yeah. two decades you now solved everything in your mind and it's, it's all, all fixed it's all, it's all done. fixed yeah 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> So in a way, Beirut is the, it's, it's the center of this story, meaning that you've been based here for the most part of the last 18 years. And I think this city has changed in ways that are profound. Mm -hmm. And you've seen a roller coaster journey. And I think part of that journey is the way this country is covered, maybe the way stories are covered too. So you mentioned already social media. Mm -hmm. There's no Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Mm -mm. There's no digital media in 2005 the way we understand it today. Yeah. And I'm going to guess, and maybe you would tell me if this is right or wrong, that attention spans are much shorter today than they were in 2005. Mm -hmm. Has this played a role in your own understanding of the region? Meaning in 2005, you have a narrative that's shaped in your mind and you're younger, mm. you're maybe you're more activist oriented. Today, we don't really engage media the way we did 20 years ago. We're all on our phones. We're always refreshing, refreshing, mm. refreshing. Even today, the way we cover Baabda is different than we would have covered Baabda in 2000. Yeah. So is, is your, maybe your own understanding shaped now by that? Have you kind of maybe re reflected a bit? on how digital media impacts your understanding. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a double-edged sword. Mm. So I think paradoxically this the social media that yeah and I think they have done many studies and people's attention spans really are genuinely reduced. Yeah. Which is obviously a bad thing. <laughs> 
Um, and obviously there's a rise that a lot of the consumption of social media is obviously, um, I can't think of other word than it's a load of it is just a load of rubbish. You know, yeah. people watching videos about kittens, etc. <laughs> but there's also, which is enjoyable, sure. But there's also just, as I was saying, just, I think it's actually amazing that we now have this just enormous access to information that we didn't have so immediately, so quickly. I actually find that quite a, a, a good thing. Mm. And I think um, also just these different angles and different voices that we didn't have access to before and the way that we can get things so quickly and the way that we can understand, uh, for example, what went on today or what happened through so many different angles, whereas back then... Uh, it really was just major news outlets and with a few magazines and, you know, I yeah. don't want to simplify it too much, but I actually find that quite incredible, even though, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not big myself on social media, but I, it's given me access to all these different thought forms mm. uh, and even people that are not even sort of beyond the media. So, you know, e economists who um, write papers on inequality, lawyers that are focused on environmental law, all of this we can access through going on Twitter, mm. which just previously, um, it, it, there wasn't a clear pathway to do that. So it, for me, it is this kind of paradoxical thing that it's, that, okay, you might waste an hour watching a video about a kitten, but you also might end up reading a paper about, you know, the economics of inequality. But let's look um, at let's look at narrative and yeah. maybe the way narrative impacts you too. Yeah. Because you're not just a journalist, you're an observer and you're living here. And I'm guessing day-to-day -day events take you know, in a way your understanding is not just shaped by your own coverage. Mm -hmm. And I think citizen journalism really took off in yeah. the time you were here. Has that influenced the way you understand Lebanon from the time you arrived until today? The way I understand Lebanon. Yeah. So in other words, alternative media the way you described it or even influencers the way they yeah. talk about lebanon has it reshaped your experience here i guess it's given me more access more i access. guess lots of people that um you know that we know that um that yeah there there are it, it, there's megaphone public source mm. um other other podcasts uh all of those yeah i guess it gives you a greater access i can say for myself as well yeah and i suppose yeah it does allow you it, do, it has perhaps shaped my view in a way that perhaps i hadn't really considered i think it just um it does generally open things up even mm. if it opens things up as well to areas that we might not um we might not enjoy or be comfortable about obviously there's a lot of misinformation as well there's ideas that we might not subscribe to yeah but there's so many that we do i think uh yeah surprisingly i find it a really positive thing even so you see it as a net positive um in, in the in the way well, net po it's uh, you know i have to do a big sort of graph to work yeah. out net positive. but yeah. overall yeah i mean anything anything that gives people a greater access to information mm. is overall positive and I suppose, I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think, because I think that you really love, you love long form narrative, right? And, and deep ideas and, and thoughts. And As time passes, I begin to feel old and <laughs> almost like a dinosaur, even though yeah. I'm 41, turning right. 42. I'm young, but You're I young. feel a bit dated because when you said 2005, yeah. I think of magazines I used to read. Yeah. It's magazines that i don't pick up or i don't even i don't care for anymore yeah but i used to read yeah uh i read less today i uh, read i read twitter that's not reading it's that's scrolling it's not reading it's scrolling so if you don't mind me jumping in but do you also yeah. find that so you're sitting for a few minutes and perhaps you read a quick article 
on a news site or you quickly read a Wikipedia uh, to just check something, which before you wouldn't have been able to do. I think... Do you think that balances it out or...? I like the way you were saying about access. Yeah. It's endless access Mm. and limited knowledge. Yeah. And I think the depth is not there anymore. Right. I'll I'll take it in a different way. Mm. And this sounds silly because it's more personal. Yeah. The shorter the clip, the more traction it gets, mm. the more argumentative in a, in a confrontational way, the more yeah. it puts you on the attention span of other people. Yeah. Your audience grows. The long form that I respect more, I'm doing it because I think it deserves to be shared, but I know it doesn't get that much traction. So I have respect mm. for people that pursue that despite, uh, despite pressure not to. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if I wonder if it gets less attention than it ever would though. I'm just wondering if the, Oh that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, so what what I'm not I can't be sure of this we you know but I wonder if the people in fact we might be bringing in more viewers yeah. with the short punchy news pieces people that wouldn't have read um you know a long form four page four page essay anyway and I wonder if those people that do read the essay you know s- you know still still do because you yourself if you were looking for something and you got distracted by these kitten videos I mentioned. <laughs> Assumedly, you still yeah. go on to read. It's not yeah. so much the kitten videos. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the news coverage that I think is diminished. Right. And actually, so you said access. I, yeah. I share that feeling that in a way, information is endless today. And voices, you can actually reach out to voices mm. you couldn't before. But that could go into a section that's maybe the role of media. Do you think there's any role in trying to better explain what's happening? Or is it simply just the cover? Because I think the explanation is what's diminished, not mm. the coverage. It's real analysis, not the sound bites. I, I yearn for that, and I know that it's limited now. You, and, yeah. Sorry, you, you think there's less real analysis out there, or you think there's less real analysis being consumed? Being consumed. Mm. The conversations I have, which I've now reached four episodes a week. Yeah. I'm a bit, okay, this is now getting too personal because it's about me. When I meet people that don't know who Robert Fisk is, that's not a generational issue. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yeah. That's, that's uh, social media overcoming the news. Whether you like him or not, mm. whether you agree or disagree with him, that's something else. He passed away, what, three years ago, two yeah. years ago? Yeah, yeah. They don't know who he is. To me, it's like, oh, so you're not reading the same thing I'm reading. You're, you're looking at something else. Yeah. Or, or for that matter, why would I go on Twitter? I see my news on Instagram. Yeah, Twitter is problematic, but Instagram for news? That doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't sound right, but I, I still just wonder if this is just a way that we can suck them in. That if mm. they go on Instagram and then you follow the link and you end up on the news site, I just... Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I sort of... I just... I'm not certain which one it is. And I do think that there's a possibility of that. And I still suspect that anybody who's got a curious mind is still going to satiate that with, with, with reading the news that they want, you know, rather than just sticking with the very short uh, pieces, as you say. So um, let's say it's effective. Yeah. Let's say the audience grows yeah. exponentially. What does effective mean when we're going down that road? Mm. I think that's an interesting way of trying to get at what the value is by having a huge uh, accessible audience all the time. Yeah. What the, what, whether news is effective or not. What does yeah, effective so, mean to you? Yeah. Yeah. 
Because you're a journalist. Yeah. But I don't think of you as an influencer. You're not on social media. Yeah, and I think it's not... You're a correspondent. Right, absolutely. And it's not your job, in a way, to deliberately try and affect change, in a sense. It's your job to say what's happened. It's your job to uh, critique and hold power to account. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's your job as a journalist to, um, to deliberately try and come up with tangible results. Really, I mean, you know, you can critique a government for certain actions that you might expect some kind of inquiry. But beyond that, yeah, it's not your job to deliberately shift public opinion. So um, I guess for me, whether it's been effective is is whether you've it's effectively covered those issues and whether they're now on the agenda. So um, I think you could you could effectively cover a crisis in a way that it would be more difficult than covering an election, for That's example. That's interesting. Yeah. So crisis coverage, it's more effective. Well, it would be easier to be more effective because ah, yeah. it's it's easier to uh, say what's going on and, mm. and critique. But in an election, um, your job really is still to critique everyone. It's not your job to support the op- opposition, even if you like them and even if you think the people in power are not, you know, as a, as a journalist. Right. So therefore, whether you've been effective or not is... Um, it's everything it's every, anyone's answer you can't uh, yeah. I, I think there's a really interesting distinction there actually so then can I make it slightly personal yeah sure yeah. You? yeah if that's the case why are you not that visible on social media why do you have a step yeah, back yeah that's a really great great question <laughs> a lot of the time so I think it's not um, I don't plan to be uh, more visible about myself but mm. I think you had on um, you had Laura Bittar from the yes. public source uh, uh, Actually, a, a week or so after she was, after yes, the after, yeah, 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 and yeah. you guys were talking about that, and she said that she was relieved to hear that she just forgets to post something, uh, yes, or, she, or that she spends months working on something and then doesn't post it, yeah, because I, yeah, uh, so she forgets to share, yeah. what's, what's on the website, yeah, on social media, yeah. yeah, it's more just that with me that I, I just, see. I'm just not sort of social media focused, so I just, right. it's, um, you know, I, I have it on my list of things to do to become more, mm. um. Twitter focused. I'm just, I think it's, I kind of agree with you that it is difficult to shrink something down. And I think some people are really skilled at that. And, um, and yeah, I'm not willing, I don't know how to, or I don't want to make myself a commodity or turn myself into a brand. And I think some people are willing to do that and then scoop in people to, to watch the rest of their work. And I don't, that's not sort of a place I'm willing to. So in my biased mind, I think that's what makes you a journalist. And what makes social media characters mm. not journalists. Yeah. Or for that matter, someone like me. I'm not a journalist. You're a journalist. I think that's where the line is always. That you're, you're not trying to get visibility for the sake of it. Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned also, in a way, there's... Okay, I'll, I'll give you another example. The Port Blast coverage. Mm-mm. While you need to have activists sharing what they see and expressing themselves, that's fine. I think the more in-depth analysis on what happened went unnoticed. Maybe a few articles got some traction. I can think of now these New York Times pieces that made the rounds, or for that matter, Der Spiegel, I think, Mm -hmm. had an in-depth analysis report on it. Those are maybe the only two that I saw being accessed regularly. Mm. Otherwise, it's images, it's tragedy, it's trauma. And that's not journalism to me. Yeah. That's emotive. That's not explanation. 
and then maybe I'm being a bit bitter here towards the influencers, but I don't think that's how you should access news. What do you think about, there are some people, you know, really great journalists who notably have massive followers. It does tend to be Twitter though, more than Instagram, I think. Mm. Um, I don't know, I do think it it is a convenient way of, of um, getting traction for your work. Mm. Uh, but yeah, as you say, it's really tricky. I don't know, after the explosion, we, I was, we were really badly injured and I really hesitated to share that for two reasons. Yeah. I just didn't think that it was, um, I didn't think, especially as a, as a foreigner, I didn't think it was, should ever be a big story that a, a foreign person is, is, is injured, you know? One, and two, um, as a journalist, I didn't want to make it as though I was turning somehow just... Being reflexive about it. Yeah, about, exactly. Yeah. So I think it was only two years after that I did eventually post pictures and explain mm. what happened. But just the one time, I really didn't want to in any way imply that I thought that that was, should be one of the primary stories. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, going back to what I was saying in the beginning, I think there's also because that's in my mind. I didn't want to... Um, traditionally in the past, especially um, some... Well, certainly UK media outlets, you've, you know, you've seen it. This, now, now it's changed, but over 10 years ago, you used to see kind of 200 dead, one of them British type of thing. Right. Yeah. This, this kind of thing. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced it and seen it in news agencies where people have, um, without going off, once I was working in a production company in Cairo, and there was a large, um, there was a, a pretty big train crash. This was 10 years ago. It wasn't, it wasn't enormous, but it was certainly the biggest news of those few days. And a channel from the UK called up and said, oh, okay, have you guys got cameras there? Do you have coverage, et cetera? And I said, yes. And they were like, how many have died? I said, um, I think a few dozen already. And then he goes, um, okay, were any of them British? Yeah. I said, no. And he said, okay, we're good, thanks. So that maybe is the, and I, that's yeah. the major shift from 20 years ago until today. Yeah. That there is a more local expression that is treated with dignity yeah. rather than numbers for... I think he might still think it, to be honest, but I don't think he would have said it. I don't think he'd say it to me today in the same tone and way that he said right. it to me those years ago. But I do think that they would still think it. I think that they would still run or some some different. It depends, mm. you know, outlet to outlet. But uh, yeah, you know, there's been a big shift and a lot of progress in that. But it's yeah. not obviously it's not complete. So but I'll yeah, save, I'll save some time for what it's like to work for TRT. OK. And what it's like to have worked for Al Jazeera and go back to Al Jazeera. Uh, I want to have one, one more question about your own personal journey. Mm. Are there any preconceived notions that have evolved in the last 20 years? The ideas that you had mm. 18 years ago and the ideas you have today. Has anything maybe substantially changed in how you, how you understand this part of the world? And more Lebanon in particular. Because mm. I heard words you used in 20 years ago yeah, that I think maybe are not looked at the same way either today i think uh how do you mean because i think i think the main i think the main thing was this sort of initial feeling that i had mm. really back in 2005 that i just kind of understood and just re re-angled my my frame and yeah. that there was this shift then um and i think everything since then has been a continuation of that and a, a, well it's more the short yeah. duration from the u.s invasion of iraq to the arab spring and I think a lot of ideas quickly took hold that mm. maybe didn't resonate a few years earlier. Meaning a U.S. imperialist plot. Yeah. And what's happening in Egypt and Libya and 
Syria too, mm. that maybe certain ways of, well, I'm not going to speak on your behalf, but I want yeah. to know if, you, if you've come to maybe different conclusions. Uh, I think uh, I, need, I want to remain being an objective journalist, so I'm not going to give away kind of my political persuasions, but mm. if anything, I would have said uh, my, my feelings are, are deeper, more... Um, uh, of, of, of just strengthened. I think mm. the same feelings that I had have only been strengthened. I don't think, um, I think beyond that initial shift, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think I haven't, I haven't really moved since well, then. it's almost like how you saw the West's role in this part of the world 20 years ago. Yeah. And how you see it today. Your yeah. relationship to that story. Yeah. Because I heard it that you came here almost to fight back. Yeah, I came here to, under, to sort of understand more and then um i suppose when you and then you when you understand that there's an us and them narrative Mm. and that that us and them narrative is used to fuel you know was used to fuel hundreds of years of colonialism and now continues to be used to fuel neo-colonialism you don't feel like maybe you want to return to the to the us group Mm. and that maybe you want to stay in the them group and in that way of thinking if that's making sense Mm. Mm. um so i think that that's that has that. There's just been a continue, continual thread for me of that of that feeling. Does that does that make so sense? So it's a deeper feeling it's, rather than a different feeling. Yes. That's yeah. 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 Okay. I'd say so. But I think looking from the outside, it's diff- it's interesting how um, things have changed around me. The difference, like I say, about this language that's that's used now, that people talk about white privilege, that people talk about things in such a different way than they did. Before, I mean, obviously these conversations were going on before, but again, I just mean so publicly and it's, it's so regular to speak like that. And there's so many more um, um, checks and control and holding people to account. For example, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, yeah. there were so many channels that said, um, oh my goodness, you know, gosh, white people as refugees, who can believe it? You know, war in Europe, gosh, who can believe it? And then, of course, they were immediately held to account on Twitter. That was immediately clipped up and people immediately uh, criticized it and said, you know, this is what an outrageous, outdated way of, of thinking, so utterly misguided. And I'm, so, I'm happy to see that. I'm ha- so happy to see that that's going on. Like, mm. obviously not happy that, that we're still getting that way of thinking and that those headlines still exist. But it's, it's great that there's people holding them to account. And it's great that there's channels as well that don't, think like that and don't speak like that whereas i think before there weren't there weren't so many you know do you think of your role as part of that shift meaning a a better appreciation for Uh, local texture well i wouldn't want to overblow my you know i i think i'm just a drop in the ocean but it's um yeah i hope so that's the idea of like at least if you're not contributing to something you're um Hmm. at least if you're not speaking this way if you're not partaking in such a yeah a manner then you're in theory, making it better. But I certainly, you know, don't want to receive a medal for acknowledging no. white privilege or anything. But yeah. I'm asking it that way because yeah. I'd like to take that into, and you corrected me actually, which I'm glad you did, into working for an outlet like TRT. Ah, yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you, you made it, you sort of fixed the way I was describing <laughs> it. I said uh, state-funded media, but you were correct. Public-funded mm. media, like mm. the BBC. It is actually the same model, technically, yeah. Same model. Yeah, yeah. So let's say, and I would assume there's a differentiation between TRT and Al Jazeera. Mm. Al Jazeera is probably more state-funded than TRT, just in terms of definition, not in terms of uh, 
trying to call them out. Mm-hmm. But let's focus on TRT. Did you ever find it difficult to do what you just said in a public-funded outlet? Mm-hmm. Meaning, the way, well, I don't want to say it's principles. It's more like basic coverage. Is there ever any interference when it's not a fully independent model? <laughs> I know what I'm going to answer. No, because I would never have done it. I would never, I would, I would never self-censor myself. Mm. And I would never um, accept being told precisely what to say or how to do something. For me, that's just, that's the end of the job. That's the end of what you were doing. That's not why you left. That has nothing no, to do no, with it. No, no, it has not, not nothing okay. to do with it. But yeah. if, if, you, if you were, I mean, that's, if you've got principles, then, then that's it. And so um, one, of the, one of the things I liked about TRT is that they were based from Istanbul. Mm. So they, you know, they loved the region and they were interested in, in an, a pretty enormous amount of coverage of, of Lebanon during that time. So it meant that I could cover the whole crisis. I think it's fair to say, I think along with Al Jazeera English, the other international media, media outlets, of course, they covered what was going on, but I don't think mm. quite to that extent. So for me, that was in- incredible to be able to be here and do that. And then I also worked on a show with them where we produced um, balanced debates. So, you know, they were by nature balanced. Yeah. Uh, that we had two sides of any story. I, I would actually watch the, I, I was invited to take part in two. I, I, I didn't at the end, but yeah. Did, did I invite you to? Maybe, maybe. it was you, yeah, maybe yeah, on one of them, yeah. 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 <laughs> that sounds right. Yes. <laughs> I, I barely, yeah, yeah, it was you, of course. Yeah. And then it didn't work out. There, two times. Yeah. But the coverage itself, I was asked to appear frequently. Mm. And I never sensed that there was any restriction. No. But is that the model that public funding doesn't get in the way um, of local coverage? Well, what? What I would suggest, and I think it's the same with any media outlet, a co- well, a couple of things. like. Um, but then again, it wasn't about Turkey, it was about Lebanon. So I don't know how they cover. Well, I can, I can say absolutely truthfully that I'd never covered Turkey for them. So I've just, I'm really out of that. I was, I was here, I covered Lebanon, yeah. I worked on my show. Um, and yeah, I would just simply not engage with something. And I do, I do just think never, never, never deliberately self-centre. You know, you, hmm. you pitch what you want to pitch, you should always proceed with that and say things the way you want to say them but I think probably how things work my understanding is I've never heard a journalist say from another outlet that they've been told what to say but I think what happens is that people are naturally drawn anyway to certain yeah so for example yeah I don't mind saying that I will never apply for a job with Fox News it just therefore they're not going to be they're not going to be faced with um it, 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 it's, I think it sorts... It would be amazing. 2005 yeah. and then 2023, <laughs> yeah, yeah. senior correspondent yeah. for Fox News. So I, yeah, exactly. So I, I do think... I do think you that, saw the light. Yeah, yeah now I understood. And I, don't, I do think that things, like, sh- they shake down in that way anyway. Mm. Um, but, I do, yeah, I don't think it's as, as direct as that. And maybe it comes back to the thing that I originally mentioned, which is just this undercurrent yeah. of, um, in, like, insidious bias that exists. Um, and yeah, I think you choose places where you will get to do the work that you want to do. For example, again, I got to cover Lebanon in that way. So with your permission, and if it's problematic, I will remove it from the episode. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that kind of obstacle could emerge in an outlet like Al Jazeera in Doha? Meaning that it's not something you expect, or for that matter, it's not something... It's not something you've experienced, but more that because that is more a state-funded model, 
I don't think so. I think you just, um, again, you just, you, you report objectively. I'm not, I don't have an, I'm not supposed to have an agenda either. Right. So you report objectively and you can support whatever it is that you're reporting on. Mm. So again, if somebody said that's, you shouldn't say that, it, my question would be why? If, if that's what happened, yeah. if that's what's going on, I'm not sharing my opinion when I work either. I'm sharing what happened. Right. So if I was told not to say that, I would need a really good reason why to understand what's... So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really fear it. And I think as you get older, although I said I would never apply for a job with Fox News, in theory... I think if you're doing a job correctly, you could, in theory, work anywhere because you could defend what you're doing and you could say to the editors, you know, yeah. that's what happened. That's the truth. And that's that's, you know, I'm not writing editorials. I think of it that way, too. Yeah. It's individuals in these institutions that yeah. matter more yeah. than the general editorial line. Mm. I share that sentiment. Yeah. So then let me ask you a more personal question. Yeah. Why are you going to Doha? Well, it's just, it's a, you know, it's a, I've been offered a great job and Doha's still in the Middle East and it's, uh, I think it's good, it's good for me, but uh, See, what I don't I'm not like, desperate to, to leave. Baby, when I slowly get yeah. to know somebody in this yeah. city and it's been very gradual with you, yeah. maybe in the last three or four years, few interactions, they leave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think most of the talented journalists that I've met over the last few years, some of them used to frequent this place. Mm. I think they still get discounts here, if I'm not mistaken journalists get some discount here they've all gone and i think it's it's quite sad to see that kind of person who falls in love with beirut yeah and doha as a news producer there it's not just doha it's all over the place and i've asked this question to similar even when you're working for something like the national mm. or something like even reuters sometimes based in the emirates let's say i ask similar questions meaning is there any feeling that you're not able to fully do what you want to do? Mm. And I get the feeling that the answer is yes, that mm. those passions are best produced here. And I want to ask you, is that what kept you here, that you found yourself fully able to, to pursue your profession in Beirut? Uh, no, I think it was the other way around. I really, really, almost inexplicably love Lebanon. So I deliberately found a way to be here. So again, I would choose a channel like TRT because they give so much, or they were giving so much coverage to Lebanon. So that was, you know, that was, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and now this move, it, you know, it just, it makes sense, etc. But as I was saying to you, I don't really consider it leaving anyway, because my partner will still be here and my cat will still be here. So it's going to be a, an in and out kind of situation. And we'll, you know, we'll see. I'm sure there'll be... Um, I actually moved to Beirut in 2010, and in theory, in 2014, after I'd been that, at that point in the Middle East for eight or nine years, mm. I, did, I moved to London, and I managed about a year and a half. And it was during that time that I worked for Al Jazeera English in London. I see. I think I managed a year and a half, and then I came back. Oh, so it's another 18 months and you'll be back again. Exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. Well, just don't, don't tow the editorial <laughs> yeah, line, and I, maybe yeah. you'll get back to TRT. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. So, Imogen, mm. I, you're very kind to let me ask you personal questions mm. about your own, your own career and maybe your relationship to this country and your profession. Um, we decided to make this episode unique in that you're allowed to ask me questions, too, and you can be as hard as you'd like. I know I'm not to everyone's... Uh, what's the word? Everyone's, I, I don't want to say everyone's taste. That everyone's taste. Yeah. I know that I, I do express my opinions mm -mm. on social media. I'm not a journalist. Yeah, you're you in a different position, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm a, yes. I think you use the word narrative, and I like mm. that. Mm. I like that word for many things. 
I think I'm a narrative framer. And I do it in different ways. Today, something very important happened. Uh, everyone's fighting each other on social media. Mm. I know you're not necessarily sharing your own <laughs> selfies on social media, but you're probably watching what's happening. And there is a serious debate happening in this country mm. over what's happening in Babda. And I think that's the future story, how to best understand that debate. Because mm. I think both sides of that debate are honest brokers. I don't think there's bad intentions, but there's a real debate happening. So we can get into Babda and you can ask me whatever you'd like. Well, I guess first off, did you, I think that, uh, <laughs> okay, look, he's changing his do you want to switch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you think, were you, did you have some expectations of today um, that there would be some kind of conclusion? Because I think I got the sense before that we, nobody, none of like us, we weren't expecting anything, but I got the sense afterwards from a few things that you wrote that you were disappointed that there wasn't anything conclusive. Can you, what, what, what were your expectations and why did you think today was significant? Oh, okay. uh, yeah. I, I think of it, I'll best explain it the way mm. I see it. I think that there would have been no president elected today. Mm -hmm. I think that was understood two weeks ago when this new candidate emerged as a serious contender. I think nobody was expecting Jihad Azor to reach 86. 65 was already a difficult number, mm -hmm. but 86 meaning the quorum, that 86 MPs would stay and mm -hmm. he would be ushered into Baabda. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was going to happen. So that, I think that's a safe bet. Okay that there was no president on the horizon. What I think what could have happened, although the chances were very, very, very small, was to do something that is so unpopular in the dialogue of what's happened to this country, which is a coalition, mm -hmm. a majority coalition that can't stand each other on domestic issues, and finds some common cause in at least one, or one place, I thought that could happen. Okay. Meaning, Babda could have a symbolic majority number, not entering the palace, but making it clear that there's a majority, 65, that we're voting for Jihad Azor. I thought there's a remote chance, but clearly it didn't happen. And so, because of your comments on the coalition, um, what are your thoughts? I'm going to ask you a question with two parts. What are your thoughts mm. about the change MPs, we can say, supporting Jihad Azor? And what do you think that, that their voters, that their support, their, fam their voters, essentially, would have thought about them supporting him? Because perhaps those are two different... Uh, yeah, those are... Well, I'll, yeah. I'll answer it in two different ways. Mm. Um, I think it was a hard sell to get all change MPs mm. to go back to what is extremely uncomfortable. Mm. And I think many people would share this sentiment. You mm. said you came here in 2005. I kind of woke up here in 2005, mm. meaning that there would be something like a majority in parliament that gets over themselves on the basics, mm. meaning basic disputes, not now. Bigger disputes, we have to find common cause. Mm. That, I thought, could persuade enough of the change MPs. Um, I, I, I forget the exact number. Was it nine. eight or nine? Nine. I think it was nine. nine. Eight, we, say eight. we can say eight or nine. Uh, I think Firas Hamdan ended up voting for Jihad Azor, I think. So there's three that didn't, right? Is that? I think it's 
Mm. Between, okay, so let's say three to four. Mm. Cynthia Zarazir, Halime Kakur, Elias Jarate, and who was the fourth? That's it. That's it. Three. They're not the easiest people to persuade, but I thought, I thought that they would be willing to do one thing with the rest of that block, mm-hmm. which is at least symbolically suggest that we have a majority name in favor of the other side's preferences. Mm-hmm. Now, you said the change MPs and what... Uh, well, so my question was, I got the clear impression yeah. that you thought that it was a good idea to do that, to put, to be willing to do it, but surely we can't really... Sh- surely you would um, perhaps say or see that this maybe doesn't adhere to the reasons that they were voted for. You know, this is somebody that was a former oh, minister right. of finance. It meant that they... Yeah, it meant that they had to go along with... Um, uh, with what the FPM was voting, with yeah. what with Gibran Basile, essentially. So is that really in line with the... I, with don't, I don't blame Lebanon's failures on the 13 change MPs. No, of course not. And I don't think they can be blamed for where we are today, but they could be held to account mm. for making strategic blunders. Mm-hmm. Not for how we got here. No, no, no. But for the decisions that they're making regarding policy right now, I think they, they can be held to account. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the way Ibrahim Naimne talks about as reasons for, for voting for Jihad Azhour. I think the quote was, I'll drink poison tomorrow and vote for him. Fine. You can say whatever you want. I don't care. That may not be the way I would talk about it, but if he needs to drink poison and do it, fine. That seems to be the right path forward. He's one of the most principled MPs I know. He's rigid. He's born out of Beirut, Medinati. He's difficult to get any principles shaken, and I like that. Mm-hmm. But he saw, for a moment, common cause. And he drank the poison, and he voted. Now, even in that speech, or that statement, he said, Jihad Azor is not making it to Babda. That's fine. That's true. He's not. But there's a majority expression that's more symbolic in nature, and I think that's the right step. Because otherwise, you're really playing by the other side's Rules. I guess you are, but I just am wondering though whether the you think that the voters, the people that went out, you know, in October 2019 mm. and then voted for these change MPs, whether they would even if you know even if you've laid out a logic, whether that they would necessarily agree with that because it's um you know as I say someone that was mm. formerly a finance minister under Fouad Sinoura with the F- do you think that people might feel a little um uh, misrepresented by that or? I don't think I so, no. Okay. I don't think so. Um, if the choice, uh, let me say differently. If the argument is that an IMF regional director, mm-hmm. forget about his education. I don't care if he has a PhD. And to be honest, I don't care that Sleiman Vrinji never finished high school. Forget that. Mm-hmm. A regional director of the IMF and a former cabinet mis- minister mm-hmm. under Fayed Senora. And for the bulk of that time, under very difficult circumstance. Post-July war, post-sit-in, Doha, all that. But that's fine. You're given a choice between that and Bashar al-Assad's childhood friend and the Marada leader. I think the choice is clear. If you're painting them as one and the same, I think you're lying to your voters. Mm -hmm. Or, and I don't think this is true, but the other explanation is you're looking for a job mm. with Hezbollah's security on your side. Mm. I don't think that's the case. I think this is 
a misunderstood problem. Mm. They're seeing jihad azur the word the way they're seeing Sleiman Frangi. At least that's the three MPs that express it this way. I think it's wrong. Mm. I think they got the narrative wrong. Okay, so that's <laughs> the politics of it. But it's good, it's good. Oh no, the room got bigger. Oh, there are more people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would um, okay. So you've talked about the. Um, so I lost my. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Would you ultimately say though? You know, there's this, with the search for the consensus candidate is uh, is essentially causing a political deadlock here. So surely the problem, in a way, isn't really any of these political groups that have all been born of this system. And in fact, surely the problem ultimately is still the system that's not, that's, that's led to, is it eight or nine months now of deadlock? No president, no prime minister, no, no government? Going with that logic mm. is an ideological expression that I don't subscribe to. Okay. System, I don't even know what that means anymore. I really don't know what that means. There's a country and there's a state that's paralyzed. Mm. And for the most part, in the last 20 years since you arrived, that paralysis, not entirely, but for the most part, has to do with things that are not political. Mm. They're security oriented. And Jihad Azur's consensus uh, pick, he's probably the least confrontational of the consensus choices that have come and gone. And yet he's still problematic enough on a security level for the other side. That has nothing to do with me with whether the system is sectarian or secular or whether it's Maronite in Baabda or not Maronite. No, but this system has created, this system constantly creates these deadlocks because it's this, because it's searching, you know, it has a sectarian parliament, but searching for this consensus candidate, which just, uh, you know, we always end up back here. Oh, no, I disagree with the premise. Mm-hmm. I think the system you're describing is mm-hmm. the system that we inherited in 2008. Mm-hmm. That's paralysis. That's called national unity. Mm-hmm. National mm-hmm. unity, I think, is something that's meant to sound positive. It's the most disgusting political trade in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. It's where you force communal leaders to agree on everything and leave the biggest problem alone. Mm-hmm. And that creates stalemate, that creates erosion. And that creates what we have now, which is what, since October last year, mm. October yeah. 31st, I forget how long it took to get Michel Sleiman into Baabda. Yeah. Was it 18 months? My memory is bad. It took a long time. Yeah, it took a long time. But that is, clearly has to do with paralysis. And you yeah. know what happened? Okay. Michel Sleiman got into Baabda not through parliament. He got into Baabda where you're moving in Doha. Mm. That's mm. not politics. That's paralysis. That's, if that's the system, then I completely agree. Yep. That system needs to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. But that's not, the de- that's not where inertia is. Right. Mm. That's paralysis. And I, I think security can do that to a country. When it's a security threat to politics, I think can do that to any country. Lebanon's not special. I was, yeah, I guess it's... Just, I was going to ask you, though, do you think, though, that the ability to twist the nail on that security threat, though, comes out of this system that constantly um, that you know has these fixed in the fixed in sectarian divisions and that allows for that security threat constantly so it all um, but I'm you know I'm coming back to the same it, it, it creates yeah. a very inefficient dysfunctional mm. state that should be reformed mm. and I think that's the goal is to find a way to make this country governable mm. but so long as that dominates the landscape it's hard to imagine anything mm. moving in a, in a real direction that, that makes Lebanon a viable option. Yeah. I think um, 
the fact that Jihad Azur's uh, name was discounted from day one by the other side, it shows exactly where the parameters are. If you're going to go civil society, you get somebody who's not going to talk about Hezbollah. Mm. And that could, that could be why. I don't know if their intentions are genuine or not. Maybe this could be just a knee-jerk reaction. That could be why they're voting for Ziad Barut. Mm. They see him as somebody closer to them. He's a minister of interior, but he's not as senora oriented, mm -hmm. even though he served under senora cabinet and a Hariri cabinet mm -hmm. too, two governments. Maybe that's the kind of person that will not cause as many problems, mm -hmm. potential problems for Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. I think that could be why, was it six or seven votes went to Ziad Barut? He's not yeah, even running. Six or seven, yeah. He's not even running. And this guy is a clean, uh, he, his, his credibility is there. But that could be a signaling that Jihad Azur is maybe problematic for Hezbollah, even in the most marginal ways. And that's a red line. Sorry, I've been talking a lot. No, sorry, with all that in mind, yes, if I can ask you a personal question. Yeah, of course. We've got like 10 more minutes yeah. and then we'll take a small break. And um, with all of that in mind, and you, you said a sentence in the middle... Um, Lebanon's not a viable option or something like this? The Lebanon that I, I know. Yeah, so with all of that in mind, yeah. how do you keep doing what you're doing and keep up the political analysis and keep up the, um, you know, so many people, as we were saying, have left and given up. And I'm curious about your thoughts and feelings on how you keep uh, going. Because I think that is what brings two otherwise different characters together. Mm. Uh, it's what's the purpose of this. Mm. If, if, uh, if expression is simply talking for the sake of talking, mm. I don't find it interesting. Mm. If narrative, if you can shape narrative or maybe reshape narrative in a way that you feel is more honest to what happened, then that's a rule. Mm. That's bringing a population closer to what could be what happened to Lebanon. Mm. But whether or not that gets somebody in Baabda or not, I think that's, that maybe they're unrelated. Mm. But at least the public is aware. But in terms of just talking for the sake of it, I don't find that interesting. This is why I get a bit, I mean, I, I use my podcast in a way that makes sense to me. Mm. I'm not here to talk to Carlos Wilson about his departure in a suitcase and let him just ramble for two hours. Mm. Or for that matter, it's not, not him only. Anyone that just it's wants sick, that, yeah. anyone that wants attention mm. for the sake of it, that's not interesting. But trying to get into what really happened to Lebanon and explaining it in a way that's honest, yeah, that, that's a mission in itself. Mm. Yeah, I guess I meant also as well that you appear to the outside when you're doing your podcasts, calm, and uh, you don't appear totally disheartened, mm. uh, which is really quite a feat, I think. That's well, because I have, <laughs> I have talented guests like yourself who bring me at, put me at ease when I talk. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, yeah. then again, it's not about, uh, it's not about fighting. It's yeah. not, confrontation is also not interesting. Mm. Yelling. That's, I, so I, I have another podcast on MTV. Mm, yeah. My two rules were... You let me talk as long as I'd like, mm. and there's no earpiece in my head. Uh -huh. Meaning I dictate, I discuss, I set the tone, and that's fine. Mm. I think that's how you get your message delivered better mm. than shouting. Yeah. Shouting, I don't think, really sells anything. Or maybe maybe turns people off. Even when the shouting is justified. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they don't hear what's being said. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's that's, that's it. That's my. Oh, you were so easy on me. I was expecting <laughs> a, a real. A tough time. Yeah. That's it. That's half time. <laughs> well, it's your. Uh, you know, it's your. Uh, Ronnie Shatter's podcast. No, yeah. but today was fifty-fifty. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Let's let's do a little break. Yeah. And then we'll let the audience ask us whatever they want. Sure. Whether it's Babda journalism, our own stories. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's take a ten-minute break. Thanks to everyone for listening. the Q&A we're just going to ask each other two more questions mm. uh, let's pick up emotion from the way you were describing arguing as friends versus a journalist grilling in quotes yeah sure so I guess the point I was making was uh, I felt like I was just interviewing you mm. asking your opinions as we can say a political analyst or a podca podcast host about you know, Lebanese politics, specifically in this case, it was presidential election. So two things. One, in that case, I felt like my role was a journalist. So it wasn't a discussion as friends where I might say I didn't agree with you. Right. I was asking yeah. you for your opinion. Yeah. And second, if I was asking a politician for their opinion, I might critique that opinion and say, yeah. is that reasonable? Are you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and critique it, critique it much more heavily than I would with you, where yeah. I don't feel that that's my place to do that because I ask you a question, you told everybody what you think, and it, what I now tell you that that's, that that's wrong. Yeah. It, it's a different dynamic, I, th I think, that that wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I don't generally tell a political analysis that they're wrong, uh, analysts, sorry, that they're wrong. It's, um, yeah, yeah. What, I, so what are your thoughts about that and your role? I nuance my episodes with MPs because mm. I always say this up front that they're the ones in parliament, not me. Mm. I'm an observer. Mm. I'm offering them what I think is a better way forward. Yeah. What they do and how they do it, I mean, they're seeing it from a different view. Mm. And I think it's much harder to be an MP and then dealing with someone like me trying to convince them otherwise. So I do have sympathy there, especially when it's a change MP that's ushered in from a massive uprising. Mm. And the way you described it earlier, trying to hold their voters concerns making sure they're held to account yeah while trying to be political in parliament i think yeah. that's, that's difficult in itself yeah and of course the change mps do appear to get a considerable amount of criticism that yeah. other people don't which i've noticed but um uh, it's interesting though because it almost sounds like you do sympathize with the politicians more than i would as a journalist it's just not my it's frankly not my problem if they have difficulties doing their job it's a very strange experience today watching yeah. Parliament yeah. and the names, and then you're looking at friends. You get to know them. Right. I mean, a lot of these MPs, not just change, mm -mm. a lot of them, actually, mm. some of them are problematic people. Right. But you get to know them. Mm. I don't know if that's friend. Maybe it's just more than acquaintance. Yeah. You're, you have a relationship with these people. And then it's, it's odd. The country is very small. Yeah. You're seeing at least half of Parliament 
you know these people, you have their phone numbers. Yeah. There was a funny post yesterday spreading on social media mm. of the phone numbers of maybe a dozen or so MPs, their mobile number. I'm like, oh, I have all of those numbers. Mm. Like, I even speak to them sometimes. Yeah, so that's an interesting point because, again, though, you're an analyst and a podcaster. <laughs> but if you're a journalist, and this is the discussion that's come up in the UK, and obviously it, it can be semi-inevitable if someone covers politics for a long time, but people, you know, it can be problematic if someone becomes familiar with the politicians and does begin to sympathize with them. Yeah. And in some cases, it, it becomes noted by the public um, that it's... And I, I kind of agree that for us journalists, it is actually inappropriate to be too friendly and to... But you're in a different, you know, you're in a different category. But. Yeah, the relationship is different. Yeah, well, it should be different. But I do think, yeah. Even, I'll give you one example. And she wouldn't mind me saying this. Najat, Najat Saliba. Mm. I've had four episodes with her before the elections, during the elections, mm -mm. after. I did two Instagram lives with her live from Parliament. Mm. Milham looked like a zombie behind her coming out of the darkness. And it was a very strange way to get to know her. Yeah. But then I'm invited sometimes to take walks with her. Okay. Around Parliament. I've had episodes live with her where she admits that she's changed her mind on certain things. Mm. But the way she's talking about it, it's like there's trust built in. It's almost like friendly advice that turns into rethinking certain things. That, I think, is the luxury of not being a journalist. Yeah. And not being a podcaster. I think maybe, I don't like to use this word because it sounds like there's ego attached to it. Mm. I think it's putting on an activist hat. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then trying to... Yeah, sorry if I labeled you as a podcast. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, yeah, technically, yeah, yeah. yeah. These are yeah. all uh, yeah. characteristics. Mm. But I do sometimes put on that hat. Yeah. And then I can take it off. And maybe that's where the trust gets... Uh, it evolves. Yeah. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, I've interviewed both of them too, but I do... Together or separate? <laughs> Separately. Really? Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> well, nowadays that would be difficult. Yeah. Previously, separately. Before. But yeah, I think I think I would actually turn down. Uh, uh, I would do my best to avoid social right th things myself. But um, you know, yeah, it's that's why I think there's a skill set attached to journalists mm. that people in social media spheres should not pretend that they have. You're a talented, gifted journalist, <laughs> and I think that's where the, that's always where the line is in my mind. Now, I wanted to ask you something. Mm. We talked about this briefly before. We both have an appreciation for audio. You're the only person I know that still listens to the radio. <laughs> and how do you do it? Do you have a radio? Are you going to your car and turning on the dial? How do you listen to radio? I don't even have access anymore to the radio. Uh, maybe I was mis maybe I misled you because I meant I listen to the I listen to the radio via via the internet. Is that was I misleading? Not podcast. But radio. No, the radio. Yeah, you're the only live person. Radio. Live, live radio. Live radio. Am I the only one? I, I don't know anyone. Is there Am anyone I? that listens to radio in the room? Really? Oh, good. Paul, your, good. your wife does radio. Do you not listen to the radio? She's right next to me. I just hear her. <laughs> no, but that's good. So radio is still something. Okay, a few. Yeah, a few in the... A few. I, yeah, yeah, I listen to it pretty much like all, all day. Like, uh, yeah, okay. very, very frequently all day. So and your appreciation, I think, is more than mine then because you're mm. listening to it all the time. Mm. But do you feel that that... That, uh, that media is more conducive to deeper understanding. I think it requires some patience that something like a soundbite or a social mm. media clip could never deliver. You have to really, really sit back and listen. You have to be more attentive, I think. Yeah, 
Um, it depends. It can be uh, quicker as well to get to the information because all you've got is information. You can't pad radio with um, uh, too many nice images and yeah. you can't go so slowly because it's just the voice. It, it would sound semi-ridiculous. So I think it just by its nature has a lot more information in it. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I guess uh, I'm not, I suppose there also, you know, there are, there are plenty of radio stations actually that have, what can we say, um, not quite the intellectual content that we might be, that I might be interested in, but sure. yeah. I just, uh, that's, yeah, I just don't listen to them. <laughs> so, um, but still you're actually every day you're listening to, you're turning the dial and finding. Yeah. Without fail every day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have more admiration for you now. As what, a result. what about you? What's your main, how do you consume your news? I, I still use Twitter to get to long-form pieces. Okay. So I read. Mm. I'm using Twitter to get to the essays. Mm. That's how I get most of my information. And do you, go to, do you read certain newspapers online each day? Or you don't have to say what they are necessarily? No, no, I'll say what they are. Yeah. I read Megaphone's articles. Mm -hmm. I don't look at Megaphone's Instagram posts. So I get to the article. Right. And sometimes when you know where the journalist is coming from or the author, mm. it makes it more interesting. Mm. When you know how they've evolved too. Mm. Some maybe evolved more recently than others. So I like, goes back to narrative. I like to see how they're reshaping their story. Mm. Uh, Dadaj, I actually read their articles too. Okay. And I do pay for the New York Times. Okay. I, so I have that monthly... Uh, yeah, so yeah. assumedly you read that almost every day if you're paying... Actually, not so much anymore, but I okay. still I still go to it at least several times in the week. Mm. And there's one more that I look at all the time, and my mind is not going there for some reason. I said Megaphone, I said Dadaj, New York Times. The, the fourth one escapes me now. Mm. I get the idea, though. You've got, you've got, you've got a spectrum of, um, you know, your mainstream classic media and then your specific yep. Lebanese independent media, etc., Oh, sorry. More recently, I've, I've gone to newer outlets because I'm not necessarily in agreement with how they portray the story. Mm. There's Triangle has a media outlet called yeah. Badil, yeah. which I think is really interesting to read. Yeah, they do some great reports. Yeah. yeah. And uh, God, the fourth one is it's just escaping me now. Well, you read the public source, I think. I read the public source, but not every day. No. Not, not every sure. day. No, yeah. and I don't think they publish every day either. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. I think Kareem's just Sorry, escaped. Sorry, Reuters. So I, I go to Reuters to get to really get the summary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I have Reuters all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And BBC Radio 4 over the weekend. Yeah. That's my radio outlet. Yeah, I do listen to a lot of BBC Radio 4. Yeah. And the World Service. The World Service a lot all the time. So. But they, that's almost become like a podcast because Radio 4 now is on a podcast. So you, can, mm. you don't even need to listen to it the way you used to. True. It streams live and then it's a podcast. True. I like to have the live, I don't know, because I'm working in news, I guess, though. I like to uh, actually just have the normal mm. proceedings of the day with the news coming in at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> like you were saying, maybe I'm showing my age. It's, uh, well, I think we're the same age. Yeah. So we're yeah, showing yeah. each other's age. Yeah, yeah. Okay, enough about us. Yeah. <laughs> so let's open the Q&A and be hard, be aggressive. Khalil, you can be hard on both of us. I told him not to ask any questions. So he's allowed to ask questions. <laughs> and there's Julia in the audience today. She almost caused a war here once. She asked one question. The audience started shouting at each other, which oh, is wow. great. It was great. Everyone's just yelling at each other. 
So you can, you can ask a question. Are, are there any questions just from the top? Wow, no oh, one none. has any questions. Yeah. Khalil has one. You guys can ask questions. <laughs> so, ha having listened to what you said earlier about uh, what today meant and uh, what can we learn from what happened today? Um, I, my, my question to you is after, let's say, uh, sin, since the date of the assassination of Hariri, okay, don't you find it, um, let's say, a bit of a pity that the actual outcome that we're facing right now is either you choose someone like Suleiman Frangiyeb or someone like Jihad Azawud. Like I could see that on local news happening in uh, uh, 2010. Uh, uh, you, you know what I mean? It's after all of these struggles and everything that took place in the country, this is actually what we're facing. It's the same um, remodeling of what we had before, 18 and 14, uh, sorry, 8 and 14. Um, and all of these concepts that are uh, binary, uh, defining uh, us and them, uh, all of those concepts uh, merged and kind of remodeled. Don't you think also on top of that, uh, or, or what would you think about the fact that after all of this, it doesn't really matter who, who will get elected anymore? Uh, because the, mm. the damage is so severe mm. to this body uh, that you, you, you don't only need a resurrection of this dying state, you need something maybe miraculous or uh, mythical. Yeah, that's it. No, no. Mm. I think that's a question for you, Emotion. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely for you. <laughs> I don't want to steal the microphone. And you mentioned 2005, so that's the better part of 18 years. I'll try to be concise and answer it in a way that I see it just to your question. I think the question is a fair question. I think most of the candidates are disappointing names to begin with, even when some I still think are better than others. But yeah, I agree. I agree. And the, and the premise that there are many talented Lebanese that deserve their shot too. I'll take it to its extreme, and I'll walk back, and I'll start from today. Uh, Paul Najjar, mm. I think if he was in Baabda, a lot of his dreams would be killed day one. And I think his pursuit for his daughter, there would be no international investigation with Paul Najjar in Baabda. So I'll take it to its extreme mm. conclusion somebody who's made it their cause and we've seen his proactive stance and we've seen him shine when he talks and he's very eloquent to me that's the kind of person i would like to represent lebanon i think he wouldn't be able to get much done mm. so let's say you take it to that extreme and you go back now to 2005 there's a part of the question that i don't naturally subscribe to but I know I'm not in the majority. I know I'm not in the majority. I know I'm not in the majority. I know that I'm in the minority. 
and I think that's how I will fade into the sunset. I still don't think March 8 and March 14 are the same. That's not the Lebanon I remember in the last 20 years. Mm. That's not the way those protest movements evolved. I do see one winning, and I see one losing through two things, violence and pander. The violence is the stuff we know. You know, 2005 to 2008, those three years alone, if you just go back to memory, it was almost every month somebody was getting killed or a bomb was going off. Mm. That's not a war zone. That's, those are years of peace. Mm. Three years, something like eight assassinations, four attempted, May 2008. And we saw, what ha- we saw how Hezbollah turned into something else. I think that's at least 90% of March 14's death. The 10%, and I don't mean it to sound so bleak here or extreme, the 10% is where I meet you eye to eye. The pandering remnants of that movement are unimpressive, they're mediocre. And they belong to this machine. They don't belong to what I think of as March 14. If you take it all the way, 18 years, yes, every single Ba'abd around has been unimpressive. Mm. And we've had, for the better part of our entire lives in this country, military leaders in Ba'abd. Not all of them, but most of them. The exception is Michel Aoun, actually, in recent memory, who came back from the army. And he was in Ba'abda when we were kids. That kind of trajectory is bad. We should have talented, capable presidents. And today, right to a few hours ago, there was a choice between someone who comes from the regime and is entrenched in this regime and represents, in my opinion, the wrong side of history, and someone who was a finance minister for three years under difficult circumstance should be held to account. Mm. If there's anything that went wrong under his watch, he should be held to account. But I don't think he's like Sleiman Frenji, and that to me is where the choice is today. But the big question is, how do you end that, and how do you have a country that works normally? I think it goes back to why 2005 ended. In 2023, everything that started in 2005 died. Investigations, reform, the port blast, everything else, Hezbollah's ascendancy, any attempt at bringing back semblances of a state met with violence too. Tayune. Do we talk about Tara Bitar anymore? I think he's become part of our history too. That to me is not March 14. That to me is not March 14 the way I understand it. But then again, I know I'm in the minority. And it's a lot easier to be Halimi Kakur, who goes on TV and says, Michelle Ma'awad, Suleiman Frenjiye. Sorry? She is a minority. Is she though? I, within her own community. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Yes. Which leads me, if I, if I may. Yeah. Sure, but uh, maybe just so it gets in the episode. So, and if you want to my, add anything, my follow-up yeah. question: uh, You mentioned minority a few times, yeah. And one one of the clear symptoms of minorities are usually insecurity because they always feel oppressed and outnumbered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think a country that's built 
or constructed on minorities will be able to synthesize any kind of um, understanding of governance that transcends that. So eventually we will be able to say as a country, well, let the majority rule without any fear mm. and let whoever won in the polling or voting uh, you know, boxes will eventually prevail and uh, do their bid. Um, and to add to that, we have historical data to show us uh, that every single coalition since 1975 has failed miserably uh, in trying to achieve that. Uh, and if you look at all of their conflicts within those coalitions, were based on uh, disagreements over power sharing. So it, it wasn't necessarily ideological even at, uh, at a certain point. Mm. And we can uh, view it today, right? FBM voted for Azour, and they wrote an actual book about him. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a bit... Uh, mm. I'll answer it quickly, because now 1975 is too far back. Mm. But it's the same... Okay, I'll answer it. Minority, what I meant was minority in the narrative. Meaning, I think if you just open Twitter or you open Lebanese social media, it's, it gains much more traction that March 14 and March 8 are the same. They're all bad. We should find someone better than the, than the two. I think that's where most people argue, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, though. But I feel like I'm in the marginal camp. Uh, that's what I meant by minority. But in terms of sect and community, I think that's what you meant. Minorities among communities that are never plural rather than majority I would bet that none of our problems go back to sectarianism what do you mean explain this is where I get no fans yeah can you explain what we expand on that I don't even know what the word means anymore and I'm sorry to bother anyone that's heard me say this before <laughs> I apologize. I don't know what it means. We are communities that found common cause in building a country a hundred years ago. Some of us were more adherent to it. Some of us were not. In the last hundred years, almost all of us, if not the overwhelming majority, identifies with this country. But the communities and the communal harmony and the consensus that comes from compromise, if that's sectarianism, I think it's with us until we're dead. Secularism, to me, is not a bad word, but neither is sectarianism. And the reason I say that is because I feel secular, but I'm in a sectarian society. And that transcends all of us. And I think if you actually put an equation it's not March 14 equals March 8. It's sectarianism equals Lebanon. I think it's us. Finding a way to make that work, I think that's the struggle. Trying to find a way to make it work in government is a huge task. But it's there. It's not something we have to think of. It's there. Ta'if, third line, Majlis al-Shiyukh. That's sectarianism reformed. I don't think that's a bad thing. That's sectarianism. But it's not ugly. It's actually communal harmony. And then finally, a merit-based parliament where it doesn't matter. As Aziyad Abi Shakir and Nadim Jmail are both Maronite, mm. they should both be allowed in. It doesn't matter. Maybe they're both good, maybe they're both bad. But that shouldn't be the issue. 
I think that is reform and that's how Lebanon could move forward. But overthrowing sectarianism, which is a very popular thing and it comes up every single protest. Min arbatash azar, lat min azar, for you stink and sabatash tishreen, and every single damn protest in the middle, it's anti-sectarian chants. I think sectarianism is with us until we die. And if it's not, I think it's something bad, which means it's divorce. And I think, instinctively, I think the appeal to partition has reached a point where there's no going back. It's whispers that have turned into discussions. It's not academic anymore, it's activist. And I think it could happen, where we lose sense of what sectarianism really means, and we end up having a very ugly version of Lebanon. That's one flavor. That to me is the bad ending, but I don't, I don't think sectarianism in itself is what brings Jihad Azur and Suleiman Frenji to Ba'abda. That's a very long answer. Yeah. No, 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 thank you for that. And ni- 1975, I think, if I may add one more thing, I think the year is also important. You said research has been done. That's when this whole tragedy began. Yeah. 50 years of this tragedy. I think national unity also is ugly. Mm. And even sectarianism becomes uglier over time rather than reformed. Anyway, I'm sorry I spoke too much. No, then it sort of sounds like, I mean, that, you know, I guess if you boil the problem down, it's the same problem as you get anywhere, which is people constructing power bases from which they will take power and not even the people that are within their power base. They just get a few crumbs of power. And that's really the, the problem, no? Like, that's, that's the issue. That coupled with identity politics and whether you call it sectarianism or however you present identity po- politics, but that's actually a problem ev- everywhere. That's a couple of people want to control the power and they're using identity politics to do it. I don't know if power sharing is bad for every country. I think power sharing, that's a bit unfair, mm. is not a bad thing. And the most successful countries in the world, some of them adhere to this. You mean proportional representation? or? Because this type of power sharing works very well. I guess I meant that I'm saying that uh, maybe the bit that I agree with you on is about the um, that it's not the underneath bit that's the issue. It's it's the the concentrations of power and the way that people wield that power, and that is a problem we have everywhere. That people wielding their power, gathering groups behind themselves, this this kind of thing. So you know, if you're talking specifically about the issues, the division of sex here. It's, um, you know, you can dress that problem up and the way that problem is dressed up is seen differently in other places. Does that, did I make sense there? If you discount Mm. the politics of the story, Mm. not politics as in the system, Mm. if you discount the security dilemma Mm. that Lebanon has been in since the 1970s, Mm. then yes, 50 years of this, Mm. you'd have to point the direction, you'd have to point in a new direction Mm. and say there's something wrong. Mm-mm. That's only if you discount that huge burden on mm. the system. Every name that we, um, not every name, but too many names yeah. that were in parliament voting today should not be in parliament. Mm. But they're, they're there mm. because of political violence. Yeah. Why the hell should we know who Nadim Jmeyed is? Mm-mm. And to, to go further, Sami Jmeyed himself mm. is a drummer or he plays piano. And then he's ushered in because mm. his brother is killed. Yeah. 
I saw it was funny watching Taymour Jamblot walk up. It's like really, mm-hmm. but that's Kamel Jamblot. And then you can extend it to many other people. Mm. And every single community, I think, at this point has this issue too. Yeah. Why is Nabi Hibri the head of Amr? There's somebody that gets killed. Mm. Why is he inheriting something that's much better than Nabi Hibri? Mm. I'll go even further. Saad Hariri, Hezbollah's preferred prime minister for the majority of our 18 years, your 18 years. Mm. Saad Hariri, of all people, should never have been Prime Minister. There's only one reason he was Prime Minister. That, I think, has to be explained. Otherwise, yes, these are just a bunch of idiot sectarian communal, uh, mm. communities, mm. and they're Lebanese, and that's why they're flawed. That, to me, is the condescending uh, narrative, although many Lebanese subscribe to it. Yeah, I guess I'm, yeah, I strongly agree with you that that is really flawed and utterly wrong, and I suppose the point I was trying to make was that you know, you see these concentrations of power just dressed up, wearing different clothes in so many other places where people have gained their power through different means. And that's essentially the problem. This, the conditions that lead to these hierarchy, the conditions that lead to concentrations of power with, these, with this, you know, you just mentioned dynasties. You see it in different ways in other places. No, these are not dynasties. These are leaders that are mm-hmm. killed either by the Syrian regime or Hezbollah. Well, these, you, are, these, are not, yeah. these are not dynasties. Mm. Yeah. They have legitimacy through security, not through mm. politics. Mm. And if they have legitimacy today and it's dwindled, really dwindled, mm. to the point that it's damaged uh, legitimacy, mm. it's because the problem exists until today. Mm-hmm. But we ignore it. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking again too much. Uh, right. Khalil, you're probably my age, 41. Uh, How old are you? How old are you? You're 35. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, it's the lighting. He okay, is 35. Well. He's 35. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah. But we are the same age. We're the same. Age. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, 35. <laughs> yeah. Are you allowed to be on Bumble when you're in a relationship? You're not allowed. No. <laughs> what What applications are? You? Yeah. I didn't know. What that. is this TikTok, Khalil? Yeah. Yeah. 3541, we're from the 80s. Mm. Enta, you remember growing up here, the insecurity we felt when the Syrians were in our way. Mafi Hadan, I think, that looks back to nostalgia for the Syrian occupation. Hatta Hezbollah doesn't look back to nostalgia for Assad's rule. Wherever you want. That was an inconvenience on a daily basis. Since 2005, we're not inconvenienced by the security problem. For the most part, we don't even see it. Mm. I think you can even visit Lebanon. You could live here for 20 years as a student studying Arabic in Saifi or wherever you study now. And you could probably never interact with Hezbollah. Yeah, that type of security is invisible to a point. Mm. That's also part of the story is that we're comfortable enough and that overshadowing monster only emerges when we hear about it or when it's dealing with its security. Mm-hmm. The most recent example, Lukman. Mm-hmm. That's when you're reminded that there is a red line you can't cross. Tayuni. If you want to fast forward it, even though it's a bit slapstick, it's a bit yellow journalism, maybe it wasn't their intention. Lakhbar 
puts jihad as uhr next to my father. Mm-hmm. Jihad as uhr is mm-hmm. blurred. Mm-hmm. My father is in full focus. Mm-hmm. Whether or not this is some, wh- yeah. whatever the message is, that's when you're, that's yeah. when you're reminded there's a security line. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about jihad as uhr and yom. Nobody's talking about that photo. Mm-hmm. It's because you don't deal with it. You don't mm-hmm. have to. Mm-hmm. I think that's equally problematic to reform. And you don't have to or you cannot, perhaps? Cannot. You clearly cannot. And mm. if you try to, yeah. we know what the pattern is like. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, even somebody who's not aggressive towards Hezbollah, Tzara Bitar, mm. made one step in the wrong direction. He hasn't touched that portfolio for what? For one day in the last two years, maybe? Since Tayuni. And I have to say it because I've had discussions with Jad Ghassan four times. That's about eight hours of Jad Ghassan. I think I've watched about 50% of them, maybe 75% of them. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I know Hezbollah is not the root of every problem, and I know yeah. they're not the issue for everything. That's obvious. And there will always be problems with or without Hezbollah. But what that machine represents, I think, destroys politics. Mm. Mm. It was, yeah, the. Ch- no, was, the chats you had, it was interesting, the, the progression throughout those chats and the things that you agreed on, the, the things that you, you didn't. Oh, was, yeah. He's 35 too. Mm. We grew up in the same country. Mm. He's come to a different conclusion. That's where the narrative wars are. Yeah. But a lot, there's a, there's a, a huge portion, I suppose, that you did agree on, I, I felt, a huge portion. It's more... I would put Bunny on this. If mm. that security dilemma was done with, mm. we would agree on so much more. Uh-huh. And the stuff we disagree mm. with that we don't today should be discussed too. Yeah. We don't maybe disagree on everything because there's a bigger problem always in, ahead mm. of us. But yeah, you're supposed to reform the state. Mm. Of course. Mm. And people that fail that are only there because of dynasty reasons, mm. violence or otherwise, they should be part of us. But you also clearly history. had a lot of respect for each other's. You both understood each other's view perfectly as well, it seemed. We get along mm. more than our fans get along. <laughs> yeah. But we read yeah. the same books. We had the same professors at AUB. Yeah, yeah. But we come from the same cloth. Yeah. Meaning, it I was, don't... Yeah, sorry, sorry. No, we're AUB graduates. It was more than that, though. It was the way that you managed the chat was very interesting, especially the first one when you clearly disagreed. And that was... Um, it was just very interesting the way that you managed to continue having a rational conversation, especially for you when it was so part of that conversation was so personal, but you kept it very on an even keel. And I don't know if it was just your nature or from the respect that you had for each other or um, a lot of things really, but it was such a productive conversation, I thought. Yeah, Although obviously believe- other people interpreted it in a different way, but it was a very productive. I think if, yeah. if you know the motive is sincere, yeah. you can talk about anything. Yeah. When it's a different type of motive, when it's meant to sabotage or hurt the other person, then you mm. don't engage. Yeah. Or maybe as well, sometimes it's frustrating if someone has a lack of understanding, but it felt like there was a lot of understanding, respect and listening. And so. Yeah. And there's all, mm. an obvious gap mm. between us. Mm. But like you said, everything else we talked about, for the most part, Mm-mm. we do see the same issues at hand. Yeah. 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 And anyway, whether he lost by 82 votes or not, he won. He was a serious, serious candidate. Yeah, he did extraordinarily well. 
in a terrain that's not comfortable for him mm-hmm. in a part of the country that's very difficult mm. in my mind he won whether he's in parliament or not doesn't matter mm. so that's good if that's his mission but personally i prefer someone like him here than i do in parliament ah uh, yeah you said that because i yeah. like i like thinking with someone like him mm. not as a politician but as a as a thinker Yeah, also it does generally it, it changes the position that you're able to to take and yeah. and the things that you're as you say that you're able to say and the amount that you're able to critique. Yep. And yeah. I don't think of him as a journalist. No. I think of him more like me. And more like an analyst, yeah. Analyst with an agenda. Yeah. Mm. And maybe those that agenda is not always uh, mm. in harmony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a question in the back. Yes. Hi everyone, thank you very much for this conversation. This is super interesting. My name is Chiara. Um, I, um, I've always been quite impressed, sort of quite interested in accountability, what accountability really means. And I guess it means different things in different contexts. I could imagine in, in a political context it means holding power to account, holding those in a power position to account of their actions. And so that would be a way for citizens to then rest assured that if they have any grievances and those grievances turn out to be rightful, they can see somehow those grievances addressed. And so I wanted to ask you a question about this in the context of recent Lebanese politics or recent Lebanese history. Have you come across positive examples of accountability where those in, a power, in, a, in power were held to account for their actions? And what, what are those examples? Hmm. Has that ever happened here? <laughs> Has there been an accountability? Uh, no, not really. That's the whole issue, I'd say. That's, that's, the, whole, that's, that's the main problem, that la- a lack of legal system that's able to... Sorry, I'm jumping in. A lack of a legal system that's actually able to implement, you know, the law in an effective manner. But... Um, i mean, that's an oversimplification in a sense. What, what do you think? That's I mean, all. it's hard to dissect the word. Yeah. Because I think there are shades of it sometimes. Mm. And that we do have elections. Yeah. And there are candidates that you think would win that lose. Mm-hmm. And there were 13 new MPs that their whole mission was about accountability. They were voted in. Yeah. I think that is a form of accountability and that you're punishing their opponents and the ballot. Now, in terms of real accountability, the way you're describing, I think, crime, or if, if that's where the direction of the question is, more like if you steal money, are you imprisoned? I mean, the only examples of accountability that I've come across, mm. and I wish Khalil was here because... Oh, I he's at the door. Oh, he's still there? Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. The only examples are, I can, they're on one hand. Uh, Interpol, Riyadh Sademe, mm-hmm. the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, three to four names. We know who they are. Okay. And these are both international uh, courts. Maybe that's accountability, but it's not Lebanese or it's not domestic in nature. The third one is where I want Khalil to hear this. Mm. He's not going to like it that I say this. Yeah. It's not Lebanese in nature only. It's under Syrian tutelage, but I think it is a form of it. It's maybe not ideal, but it's a flavor 
Samir Jaja was in jail okay. for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe, that's, that. yeah. maybe that's not exactly the definition of accountability the way you're asking it. But the man was in isolation for 11 years. Maybe this is a case of accountability. I was surprised to hear you include um, the Hariri Special Tribunal's accountability, though. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's the only example of a verdict. Yeah, a limited, you know, such a limited verdict, though, right? After such a, an enormous amount of time with such an enormous amount of money spent. I don't, or do you, see it, do you see it differently with such a non... It felt like such a non-conclusive... Um, what is non-conclusive about it? There's um, a thousand-page report. There's uh-huh. names that are, and there's three names alive, one dead. But literally one name that was that was. Um, Salim Ayesh. Yeah. We now know hmm. if if accountability begins with actually knowing what who committed a crime, hmm. that's the first step. The money spent and the length, I agree, it took way too long. Yeah. And it could have been expedited. But the fact that the Lebanese state doesn't go and arrest these individuals mm. is the lack of accountability. accountability that the state doesn't have. Mm. The state cannot pursue this issue. Or for that matter, anyone. I mean, Tariq Bitar, his whole job was predicated on that. Mm. He took one step and it was stalled. I think I suppose I would have said accountability would have been, you know, obviously he didn't act alone and accountability would have been, you know, a, a, a broader, conclusive um, account of who, who was involved and directly where it came from. But I mean, you know, obviously this is not... I don't know. I mean, that report was very extensive. Mm. The, the whole political process Mm-mm. was outlined. Mm-hmm. It's unemotionally... It's, there's no satisfaction mm. with Fair the enough. ending. Yeah. Because you know from the beginning that those are individuals, the Lebanese state... Mm. will not go after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now That's imagine another scenario. Mm-hmm. The Lebanese state goes after them. Mm-hmm. That's when I think people start to care. Mm. This would, yeah. That's the next this step. Would be, this would be, yeah, this would be true accountability. That's, that's the first step. Yeah. yeah. I suppose I would say, you know, overall, barring some of the examples you gave, it was this lack of accountability that allowed for the port explosion, clearly. Clearly, just the knowledge that there's, there is this utter lack of accountability. I mean, it was yesterday or two days ago, Sarvos was sued in the UK and Paul yeah, 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 yeah. got a million dollars. It was a million dollars, I think, total over that was amongst a few people that, that the courts declared. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm. So let's say that that is also, that's mm. a form of justice. Mm-mm. It's not Lebanese. Yeah. It's happening in the British court system. Yeah. That, that's maybe these are the examples you can think of. Sad though that t- two that we've named came from courts that were. This is yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But good for Tariq Bitar for reminding us why he can't do his job. Yeah. Yeah. Any any, any other uh, questions? We have time for a few more. Is somebody the in? lady in the back. A little closer to you. I oh, oh yeah. okay. Hello, thank you. My growly voice. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't understand you, but um, I have a very different question. Um, It's about journalism, actually. Okay. Um, I traveled here from uh, the city where the International Court of Justice is, The Hague. So that's like a bridge I can make, but that's the only thing. Uh, I actually wanted to get back to the thing you were talking about, like in the very beginning, Mm. um, which was, can you understand me well? 
Uh, I can, it's a bit quiet, but go on. Okay, I can come a bit forward. Okay. <laughs> if that helps. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you were talking about like um, this narrative of like Western imperialism and basically yeah. like how the language has changed, like how there's more access to ideas these days, how you've seen sort of a positive change over the years that you've worked as a correspondent, right? So, sorry, the last you said that I've seen more of a positive Okay, yes. Yeah. Yes, because there's more access to ideas and, yeah. like, people are starting to be a bit more open-minded, I guess. Yeah, or, um, yeah, understanding knowledge. Yeah. Yes, but at the same time, I feel like there's also a system in place, which, um, that's why I'm mentioning that I'm from the Netherlands. It's not an interesting country, you can forget about it, but um, recently they were looking for a new Middle East correspondent. Um, who would cover everything from Morocco to Turkey and everything in between, basically. Um, so I've read books like I've read Robert Fisk, you know, like and all the, all the journalism classics and like they've been saying this from the 70s, like this is problematic and still they are looking in this way for a reporter who can somehow explain the whole Middle East to Europe. Yeah. How have you seen this like develop over the years that you've worked here? Like, has anything positive happened like in this regard as well? Um, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, Turkey's not actually even part of the Middle East, so that's a very particularly the, the fact that they'd overstretched is one thing, but the fact that they've also included uh, Turkey there, it um, I don't know. I've seen that come and go in waves. Some of that is also budgetary, to be honest. That that um, and it depends whether whether it was it a paper or a TV channel or yes, it was a newspaper. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if it's sometimes if it's a, a national paper, you know, they have they have a couple of, of um, pages at the back about foreign news, and like clearly they they're not going to dedicate a journalist to each country, and I, I have, we have to be reasonable and understand that. But yeah, at the same time, obviously it's somewhat absurd to to have somebody stretched so utterly thinly, and how could you possibly be covering the politics of all of those countries at once? Um, I think. Uh, well, I was mentioning earlier about, you know, if you look at Al Jazeera English or other channels that just don't do that anymore, that just that just will not, you know, that just have so many more journalists dedicated to this. So, yeah, I have seen a change. Um, some channels haven't changed at all. Some channels have changed within them. And then you've got new channels that now just no longer do that. So I, I do think there is... Um, progression on that and there's also a change in who works in the news these days I think there was always before um, uh, people would always sort of send someone from the home home city and I think that's changed and a mm. lot of newspapers and TV and news outlets have understood that um, the, va the value in the fact that you know people are quite good at reporting their own news <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, uh, that's that's changed a lot as, as well, massively over the time that I've been working. So there are positive changes, but it's also it's um, you're not going to you're not going to see a complete destruction of the ideology that I was talking about. It's look to be honest, it's pretty difficult to try and um, have influence all over the world if you don't have some kind of idea that you have um, without a sense of superiority, really. So I don't think that that's that's not going to dissolve in our in our lifetimes. Um, any any newspaper or channel that's based out of London, etc. That's that's where they're from. That's that's a starting point for them. So progression, and also some more of the same. I'd say in summary. May I ask but, what Al Jazeera English? Do they have preference now for local correspondents? 
Meaning Lebanese talk about Lebanon? Um, I haven't started working for them yet, so I couldn't say that they definitely do. But when I'm watching, it appears that they... Um, mm. But I couldn't... I, I don't know what the policies are there because I haven't been in their, sat in their newsroom yet. But what it about, certainly seems so. When what about I'm, TRT? Did they ever have this sort of insistence on... <laughs> well, the thing is, it's ironic, isn't it? Because, of course, I'm not actually Lebanese. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, yeah. But did you ever feel that this was changing? And uh, that a... I think they have a... I mean, also, it also just makes logical sense because that person has more knowledge and speaks the language. Mm. Like, again, obviously, it's slightly ironic for me to say that when I yeah. was the one covering Lebanon. But it's... Uh, yeah, I think, that, I think that a lot of channels understood that it makes much more sense and that um, you're going to get a more in-depth type of news. I think that has changed. But Then I'll ask you one follow-up to that. Sure. Isn't there an obvious defect there that you would not want someone like me talking about Lebanon as a correspondent? I come with a set of ideas and I see it the way it makes sense to me, but they, that could be a very different lens than someone parachuted in who sees the terrain in a different way. Um, yeah, that's a, a really interesting and big discussion mm. um, about whether somebody does... I suppose, though, if, if you decided that you were going to present yourself as a journalist, there would be a different onus on you, Right. Yeah. Um, I, I would say. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, you would be... For me, it would be important to, to not necessarily suggest who you liked and right, didn't, yeah. didn't like. I would. So I would it's putting say. on the same cap you put on, meaning it's a step back. I would say that it would, yeah, yeah. that you should do that. Yeah, right. that would be a better idea. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> you, but so. you're you're in your position as you are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. We have time for maybe one more question. If there's anyone that had a final question, the is that gentleman raising his hand? Yes. Mm. Uh, maybe we could get Julia to ask one as well after this. <laughs> I know Two you want that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so, okay, coming from like the perspective of Ireland, um, I kind mm. of agree as well on the whole sectarianism side of it. Mm. That, like, it's a bit of a bizarre concept to say the war in Northern Ireland that like it didn't start over sectarianism yet. At some point through the war, sectarianism became a thing, mm. um, and now it is. Um, but going back as well to like what you said about Hezbollah, about how you get more things done now if Hezbollah weren't there, why do you think that? Because like in Northern Ireland, there's still hung parliaments as well. There hasn't been a parliament for a year up there. And it's kind of a similar situation in that the, the, the sects are kind of in equilibrium at the moment and yet that's a relatively like that's a peaceful country the, like the, the, the paramilitaries haven't had power up there for mm. 20 years but yet they still can't form a government there either so why do you think they can or they, they'd like uh, they, w without Hezbollah here they would be able to get more things done I'll answer first and I'll let you okay, yeah, you're sure, since yeah. you're both yeah. far more fluent on this than I am you're from Ireland? You're from the UK? Yeah. Okay, so it's there's already some overlap there in Northern Ireland. I'll just say it the way I've experienced it, two, two ways. One of the best conversations I've had on my podcast is with a Lebanese-Irish academic, Drew Mkhayil. If you ever want to come across somebody who talks about Lebanon and Northern Ireland in the same passion, he may be the only one, but he's very good at it. He actually calls himself a pracademic, meaning he's a practical academic. He's trying to orient policy. Uh, I agree. 
paralysis in Northern Ireland is bad for politics, it's nothing like Lebanese paralysis. And I agree, Sinn Féin has a way of addressing its issues. That's the Hezbollah I dream of. Mm -hmm. A disarmed IRA that's really talking about the things that matter, not war. The last time, the one time I was in Northern Ireland, I was in Belfast in 2002. Funny enough, on a conflict resolution course about sectarianism. Ah, right, okay. And there was a bombing at the Holiday Inn in Belfast. We were in Belfast and there was a car bombing. And it's devastating, it's news. It's one car bombing in the last, what, 22 years? That's a miracle. You know how many car bombings we've had in the last 22 years? So I agree. These peace walls are ugly in Belfast. Some people like Bono, some people hate Bono. Some people spray paint the Palestinian flag. Others spray paint the Israeli flag. Let them spray paint whatever the hell they want. That's fine. And I think, yes, it, it, sometimes the, the notion of sectarianism as an ugly characteristic, yes, it is real in that the way people identify can become vulgar when there's issues that take advantage of that fissure. Otherwise, who gives a shit if there's Catholics and Protestants living in Belfast? It doesn't matter. Or Sunni and Shia. Mm. Or Maronites and mm-hmm. Armenians and whatever the hell you want in this country living mm. side by side. It doesn't matter. Maybe it matters sometimes for the wrong reasons. Belfast seems to be overcoming that. But that's my take. You, you both tell me. Well, I don't know if you, I don't know. I don't think he was really asking me. I think that he was asking you about that. But I suppose I would kind of echo what Ronnie said and say, don't you think that the difference is the Good Friday Agreement, basically, and the the disarmament? So that's the the difference. Like here there is, Ronnie said a lot about the security threat and that constant threat of um, there can be violence. We can go back to this and... You can you you can say better than me, but after you know after the Good Friday Agreement, wouldn't you say that that's that's the change, that's the switch, and there hasn't been that moment here. Like there was sort of the pretense of that moment, but it hasn't it hasn't really happened. The weapons are all still here. I don't know. Do you? What do you? Well, my my point is more so that like they, we're kind of still in the state, or they're still in the state of flux up there as well. It's kind of similar as well. You know, they haven't had a, a parliament for a year up there as well. Similar to what happened today, because. It's at the point where the sects are all like, they're almost at the same level. There's like 50%, well, bizarrely as well in Northern Ireland, you have, uh, you have a situation where non, non-unionist and non-Republican parties don't actually have a say in the vote. Mm. You only have, like, it's, it's based on whether you're unionist or Republican, um, whether your vote counts or not. And both of those parties, the unionists and the republicans, are both equal at the moment. Mm. So that's why it's kind of at a stalemate as well. Mm. So, like, the, the point is as well I'm kind of trying to make is that, yet we don't have a paramilitary, we don't have a par- paramilitary threat up there, but things are sting- still hanging in the balance. They still can't form a government there mm. like they can't elect the president here. That's true. And... The IRA is not negotiating Brexit on behalf of Ulster. Uh, And in the last 22 years, you're seeing the beginning of sectarian reform. I think that is what would happen if this security dilemma here ended and give us one generation. Mm. We may be having the same problems you have. I think there's a starting point that has to begin. We haven't gotten there. Mm. 
I don't know if Northern Ireland will be a prosperous country, mm. prosperous part of Ireland or the UK. But I love that the fissure is between whether you say London dairy or dairy. Mm. That to me is breath of fresh air. Although without going off topic, I think really that was one of the most un, um, not unfortunate, terrifying effects of Brexit. Honestly, that it threat it threatens the uh, the um, the fabric of the Good Friday Agreement. Essentially, that it was it was all based around that and not having boundaries. And um, yeah. it is. It is, um, yeah, Hezbollah worrying development. But anyway, that's negotiates all, yeah. with Israel over line 23 mm. or whatever, mm. line 29, line 23, it ends mm. up being de- demarcated. Mm. Imagine if the IRA was tasked to negotiate customs control between Ireland and mm. Northern Ireland. Mm. Imagine what that would look like. Mm. It, would, it would make no sense. Mm. I think that's what we have along the Syrian border. Mm-mm. Sorry. No, it's all. Drew Mkhayil, I'll give you his contacts if you want. He's, he's one hell of a academic. He's persuaded me on many things. Thanks. One more question. Is it you, Julia? <laughs> Are there any more? Did, were there any more questions? No, Julia, ask a question. I really like the Irish question, though. That was great. It's yeah. something an opinion on pizza if you want I have no questions it's fine <laughs> well Khalil did you have one more uh, <laughs> we'll wrap it up with emotions uh, okay. partner so uh, quick question I'll kind of ask the same question Emerson asks you asked you before sorry um, through everything you said you always saw a glimmer of hope for some reason um yeah. Do you think your your political upbringing, uh, the way you kind of fed from your environment, has led you to this point, or uh, is this something? Because I mean, let's let's discuss the elephant in the room. You've been through a hell of an experience mm. as a, as a Lebanese citizen. So has that is your political uh, kind of foresight related to that i get asked this question all the time yeah and the answer is no okay it has absolutely nothing to the way i see this country okay there's a moment that goes back earlier it's when i'm sitting in ashafi and sesin at le chase if you remember le chase when samir asir was killed that's the beginning of my journey into this Mm. whole mess it's staying here during july 2006 and doing hygiene kit distribution with communists in Samidun and Zico House. Mm. That's where my political awakening starts. 2005 to 2006. Everything else that happened after, it's best expressed in those months. The way I saw Lebanon changing Mm. from February to March 14, the way I saw the most decent people getting killed, there's no reason Samir Asir should be dead. Actually, if he's still alive, it's the spirit of what you're addressing, which is mm. he lives on in different people. He's influenced a generation. But there's no reason his mind should not be with us right mm. now. That's where it starts. And many years ago, I used to give uh, storytelling tours in honor of Samir Asir. Mm. That was my whole gig for about 15 years. 
what happened to my father, what happened to my apartment, port blast, what happened to friends that died on the way, other politicians that paid the ultimate price, and people you know that get killed for no reason in Lebanon. No, it goes back to what I saw 18 years ago, probably when you arrived. Hmm. Well, yeah. No, it just is remarkable. It is very remarkable the way you, um, the way you, the way you um, continue. It is yeah. remarkable. But what I saw, what I remembered, this yeah. is why I'm hell-bent on defending March 14, mm -hmm. is I saw a country wake up mm -hmm. from a coma. I remember those days. You're telling me as if I Yeah. No, no, but <laughs> no, that, no, that to me, yeah, that, not. you said glimmer of hope. It's not about glimmer of hope. It's what I remember. Mm. Yeah. That, those, oh, yeah, those 28 mm -hmm. days, February to March 2005, I think changed me. And mm -hmm. I think it changed most of us in ways that are profound. Mm. That's, that's how I see the country. Cheers to you guys okay. and cheers to you, Emotion. Cheers to you for staying in this country for the better part of two, 20 years or almost 20 years. It's a shame you're leaving. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll be back within a month. You'll be back within a month. Yeah, you yeah. have a great boyfriend, partner, whatever he is, fiance, husband. And a beautiful cat. And you have a beautiful cat? It's sensationally beautiful. So, I mean, I, I can't go anywhere without that cat. I'd prefer hanging out with Sadiq. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening to an Cheers. intimate discussion tonight. Mm. And a round of applause to Emotion Kimber. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah. And this is the Beirut Banyan.